0: This is a true story. It was a White Sox game. And I remember I went to opening day of the White Sox in 1983. And I had a dream the night before that everybody was in the same seat and the system didn't work. Uh,
1: uh, 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 Hello and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm David
0: Kestenbaum in Washington, D.C. And I'm Adam Davidson in New York City. That was famously irascible. Is it Irascible? Irascible. Fred Rosen, the former CEO of Ticketmaster, you heard at the top. David, I believe you are holding in your hand our indicator. I am, and it is 6.6%. That
1: is the increase in worker productivity on an annualized basis. It is slightly higher than
0: last month's estimate, so that means we are getting more productive. I feel that way, David. The podcast is coming together faster. My interviews are shorter. I'm writing faster. All of Planet Money is just becoming this efficient machine. Really? Well, you know that's absolutely not true. <laughs> <laughs> it just takes a long time. But, you know, David, I feel like productivity is the distance between the boring thing it sounds like when you hear productivity was up 6.6% and the actual fascinating thing that it actually is. I feel like that is in one of the largest distances between what it seems and the fascination of what it is. I suppose
1: it's sort of one. Uh, I mean, productivity going up is one is one good thing that comes out of a recession. Right? I mean, this is a major driver of our economy, right?
0: Yes, I mean, basically, it's a major driver of everything. When you, I, I just did another one of these interviews with a historian about life in the pre-modern world, and basically, productivity never grew, which means it took ninety percent of people or more to produce enough food for a hundred percent of the people to to live, or at least enough of the people to live who were living. Without productivity growth, you don't get economic growth. You don't get leisure time. You don't get longer lifespans. You don't get all of the benefits uh, uh, that, that the world has acquired over the last 200 years. Some might say all of the curses as well. You know, you don't get carbon e- exposure in the environment, et, et cetera. But productivity, without productivity growth, you, you don't have better lives year after year. And, and some of that is,
1: uh can be like computers or better equipment, right? Some of it's just people learning to do their jobs better. Some of it's maybe not people not filing for overtime they should be filing for because we're in a recession and your boss might fire you.
0: Right. I mean, productivity growth over the centuries leads to better and better life uh, expectancies, better lifestyles. Over the short period, particularly in a recession like this, you just don't know. I mean, I think you're probably right. There's probably a lot of people worried about losing their jobs, doing a lot of work without Charging for overtime, you know, goose on the stats uh, in in the short term, but uh, but over the long term, you know, you you want to see actual, real, genuine productivity growth.
1: Do we often see productivity uh, decline as we come out of a recession? If everyone's like, okay, I can spend time talking at the water cooler again. I'm not sure. <laughs> right. That would we be a fascinating thing. Let's let's watch for that. <laughs> all right. But in thing. the interest of keeping our
0: productivity up, this is going to be a short podcast. Um... Yeah, exactly. Alex and I are hard at work at our next uh, This American Life program about regulatory reform uh, that's going to be on the air September the weekend of September 18th and also earlier that week on Morning Edition, All Things Considered, and This American Life over the weekend. We have been working really hard all summer to take regulatory reform and make it fascinating and sexy and exciting. And um, I don't know. That Pew thing you did was great. The, the gathering of... Uh, yeah, the it, live It was event. a mix
1: between, how'd you call it, a Supreme Court hearing and... American Idol.
0: Yeah. <laughs> right. And and uh, we're going to be playing a lot from that Pew hearing next week on the podcast. And then, David, you and Hannah are really hard at work on another really important healthcare-related project. Yeah, we
1: uh you know we've had two sort of podcasts where we tried to look at different players in the healthcare system to try and figure out why it's so messed up. And we've done the uh the doctor, we've done the patient, and I think the big piece left is the insurance companies. And they are a really interesting corner of this because though much maligned, they are the They are the economic actor in the system who it should be in their interest to try and make the whole system more efficient. You know, if they can uh, charge people, if they can get MRIs cheaper, if they can get hospitals to give more efficient care and not order too many tests, then they should be able to charge lower premiums and they should just corner the market. But it doesn't seem like they are much of a force for driving down costs and making healthcare more efficient. So that is the puzzle we're focusing on. That sounds like an economic riddle. It does. And uh, we, we this is what we do have for you today. We do have an economic riddle. It's a pretty great one. Yeah. And we even have an answer, too. An, an-, an answer <laughs> from, uh, from Emily Oster. She's that economist at the Chicago Booth School of Business who's been applying some basic economics to riddles from everyday life. And today, she takes a riddle from a Planet Money listener
0: about Ticketmaster. You know, David, I became fascinated with Ticketmaster a few years ago. I did some reporting on, um, on it. And I, I learned... For example, that Ticketmaster's competitor, Ticketron, the oh, guy... Yeah,
1: Ticketron. You remember
0: that? The guy who ran Ticketron had been um, a high-level executive at NPR way back when, many years ago, long before you got here. But I talked to him, and I was saying, is Ticketmaster an illegal monopoly? And, and his take was basically, they are brilliant, cutthroat business people who have basically a legal monopoly, uh, as far as he can tell, that... And, and, and he presented to me a puzzle, a riddle, if you will, that, that I worked hard to answer, which is this. Let's say you are a concert venue, uh, you are Kestenbaum uh, Dance Hall, and <laughs> I'm Ticketmaster. I come to you and I say, hey, I am willing to give you a lot of money just for the right to sell tickets for Kestenbaum Concert Hall. How much money are you going to give me? Millions. Millions of dollars. The next several years of proceeds. All right. that's Okay, fine. Deal. Okay, right. It's an easy deal. But why in the world would I do that? Why would Ticketmaster give millions of dollars up front to Madison Square Garden to, you know, just name your concert venue that you can think of, um, just for the right to sell tickets to them. It it seems like a waste of money. Would you go, you know, to your dry cleaner and say, hey, I'm going to pay you in advance for all the dry cleaning that you're going to do for the next several years? No, and I agreed to your deal because I couldn't see why you're making it. It seemed great to me. Right. So so what I learned is in any one instance, that would be nuts. It would be crazy just to do that deal. But there's something called a network effect. That By doing that deal with enough different venues, Ticketmaster is able to basically lock up the concert ticket business. And once you lock up the entire concert ticket business for the whole country and you effectively eliminate any competition – Suddenly, there's a lot of ways you can make a lot more money than you would if there was not this kind of almost legal monopoly. So, if I'm uh, if I'm Bob Dylan,
1: I always want to be Bob Dylan. I guess I could be Q Tip too whoever. Anyway, suddenly I've got to go with Ticketmaster, right? Because that's just how it's done. That's where the audience looks for tickets.
0: And if I'm the audience, I have to go with Ticketmaster. They, they, you know, it's a monopoly both ways. The, the concert uh, promoters have to go with Ticketmaster. The concert ticket buyers have to go with Ticketmaster. And suddenly Ticketmaster can negotiate every deal in a much better, better way. Which brings us to today's riddle. It comes from Nicholas Koss, a Planet Money listener. He wants to know why ticket and this really drives me nuts why does Ticketmaster charge a convenience fee to print tickets he buys from their website in other words you could for free or whatever you know nothing's for free with Ticketmaster but you could wait for them to mail you the tickets or you can print it right there on your computer and then you have to pay for it I hate this this is so ridiculous Alex Bloomberg and I asked Emily Oster and she figured it out right away
2: so I think what he's thinking of is the idea that it seems like it would be cheaper for the – I'm sure, in fact, it is cheaper for the—it's Ticketmaster to, to let you print the tickets than to send them, send them to you by mail. So why are they not charging you less um, or an equivalent amount? Um, so I, I think the answer to this question is that you have to think about what people are willing to pay – uh, as well as you have to think about the demand side as well as the supply side. So his instincts, the instincts here are about the supply side, that this is costing you less, it's costing Ticketmaster less to supply. But if on the other side, people are willing to pay much more for, or willing to pay some more for the convenience of being able to print something out and just go and not have to wait at the at the counter to pick up the ticket, not have to wait and worry about is the mail going to come, is it not going to come, um so people are willing to pay something for that and and Ticketmaster is is charging them for that. Now if there were many places to purchase your tickets, if this was very competitive, you could buy your tickets online at Ticketmaster or Ticketron or you know Ticket or Ticketweb or you know there were millions of these things, you would actually expect I think the prices to reflect more of the costs that the that the Ticketmaster type activity faces. So you'd expect I think the prices of, of printing things out to be lower. Because when we think an industry is very competitive with many, many different people in the industry, we typically think that price is going to be equal to marginal cost, equal to the cost of providing that that good on the margin, that that ticket. Um, in an industry like the one the Ticketmaster is in, where they're really the only game in town, they're effectively a monopolist on online ticket sales, uh, they can then price in a in a way that reflects the fact that reflects different things about about demand conditions. And I think in this case, uh, what it's reflecting is that you are willing to pay, people are willing to pay more to print out their tickets than they are to get them by mail.
0: Right. Which is one more reason why it was so smart of them or so sneaky of them to lock up all these multi-year Agreed. deals. Right. Yes.
2: Yes. Being a monopolist in that industry is is very good and also hard to do because there's no it doesn't seem like there should be any reason that you can't have ticket web and ticketron and other things and and they've they've managed to figure out a way to like generate a monopoly.
1: So Adam it seems like we have we have a semantic problem here. It's not really a fee for your convenience. It, it's really uh what economists call a rent. Ticketmaster can charge you a ridiculous amount not because they've come up with the most brilliant solution to the problem of how to get you the ticket.
0: No, it's I guess convenience fee sounds better than monopoly rent, which they maybe more truthfully could have called the thing. Um, but basically by by having this business model of preventing competition, you are sitting there at your computer and you're not thinking, wait, Ticketmaster wants to charge me four bucks to print the ticket at home. I'll just go to TicketWeb and print the ticket. Ticket for three bucks there, or ticket Tron and print it for two bucks there, or eventually all these competitors would say, You don't have to pay anything because we want your business. But since Ticketmaster is my only option, then it's just uh, they can just charge whatever the market could be bear, and apparently that is some silly amount, because I think the last time I got Ticketmaster tickets for a Springsteen concert, I think I paid the convenience fee myself, which I feel <laughs> badly about. Hey, David, can I tell you a few other little things I remember from my Ticketmaster reporting of a couple yeah, of years ahead. ago? So the NPR guy who ran Ticketron, he explained why um, they got their... Their uh, butts kicked by Ticketmaster. So he said, Ticketron, and I remember this, they used to be in like Tower Records and other places, and you'd go there and buy your tickets to the concert, which was a big deal. It was, you didn't, you no longer had to go to the Roxy or go to Madison Square Garden. You could just go to this one central location. And he said, Ticketron's business model was to basically, there was virtually no convenience fee. It was like 15 cents per ticket, but they would charge hundreds of thousands of dollars a year to. Tower Records for the machine, for the computer and and the whole system for printing the tickets. And Tower Records' idea was that if I went there to buy tickets to the Duran Duran concert or whatever, um, I would go in and then buy some Duran Duran albums. Did that happen? Did you buy a lot of Duran Duran? um, I believe there was a Duran Duran phase. (laughs) And I did see them in the garden in like 1982 or something. Um, I was young. And, uh, and, And then Ticketmaster came along and from anecdotes I heard from friends of Fred Rosen, he basically saw the people scalping tickets out front. Because remember, tickets used to be to a concert were eighteen bucks, twenty bucks, and you go out front, and and there'd be people selling them for eighty bucks, a hundred bucks. And Fred Rosen saw those scalpers and said, "This market can, we can charge a lot more than 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 fifteen bucks or twenty bucks. We could charge eighty bucks or a hundred bucks or four hundred bucks." And so his model was make it as easy as possible to sell the tickets. Anyone can be a ticket master outlet, you can get it as easy as you want and then we're going to just charge as much as we possibly can for the tickets, for the service fees, for everything because then we can reach those people who are willing to pay more. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So so there's not this primary market of people who pay 20 bucks and then a secondary market that the concert venue or the ticket company gets no piece of where people are scalping tickets. Um, so, so the Ticketron guy said they just had a better business model. They had a smarter idea. Um, no, really, smarter. he said we just we just got beat. He said we got really, really, really beat. That Fred Rosen was a genius, a genius. I mean, not not to say like we benefited. It's kind of annoying to many of us. But I'm sure he has a story to tell about how he made the world a better place. But, um, but you know, but in thinking about this, I was thinking, you know, when you when you print your airline tickets. They encourage you to do it, and there's no extra fee. So, you know, that's a market where there's competition. If, I guess if there was one airline, they'd probably charge you a whole bunch of money just to print your boarding pass. You wait. There will be a fee. Yeah, I guess you're right. <laughs> hey, David, one last thing before we wrap up. Um, a couple apologies about Friday's podcast. Um, I said something that was based on a misunderstanding, and, and it was factually incorrect, and I want to correct it. Um, in my conversation with Barney Frank, I said that um, some of his staffers had told me that they – I forget the exact words – but that they were going to get all the regulatory reform business done this year, and, uh, and then that was it. Um, I have heard that from other people, but I have not heard that from Barney Frank's staffers, and I very much apologize for misleading or – I mean, I I misspoke I, I in the heat of the conversation. I said something incorrect. I apologize to Barney Frank, to his staff, to our listeners. David, I apologize to you personally. <laughs> Thank um, you.
1: I, it's been bothering me.
0: Also, um, I've gotten beat up a little bit on the blog and in our emails for sort of touting Apple and making some big statements about how Apple is so awesome. And you know what? They're all right um <laughs> i sort of mean? whipped that together and i i like to admit it when i'm wrong and um you know i i i it was it was not the deepest and keenest of insights i've ever provided and um i will work harder <laughs>
1: There you have it, folks. Quality journalism, as we said, it takes time and a correction section. That is it for today on Planet Money. Send us your economic riddles. You can write to us at planetmoney at org.
0: Yeah, we're getting ready to have Emily Oster back. And so please send us your questions. And also, please do check out our blog. Uh, the Big Unemployment Report for August is coming up on Friday. Big news. Are we almost out of a recession? Are we deeper in one? Stay tuned. We'll have lots of charts so you can see what's going on out there in the job market. That's at npr.org money. I'm David Kestenbaum. And I am Adam Davidson. Thank you for listening.